As most of you guys know, we have been in uh, the book of 1 Peter uh, for the past little bit. And uh, over the past couple weeks, uh, Peter has been addressing uh, different groups of people within uh, his audience, his, his listening audience. Uh, Christianity as a faith was very appealing uh, to many groups of people in the Greco-Roman world, especially groups who were uh, lower on the socioeconomic totem pole. Uh, servants, women, sojourners, orphans, widows, and uh, people of all walks of life were welcomed with open arms and treated as equals within a Christian community. Uh, Galatians chapter 3, verses 28 through 29 reflects this. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you're Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to a promise. Because of this, a Christian interacting with someone of a different belief or social standing would look different from what was expected in first century society. Uh, Peter's encouragement for Christians as a royal priesthood was to live in such a way that pointed people to Jesus. So over the past few weeks, 1 Peter uh, chapter 2, uh, verse 11 through 17 was directed towards citizens under Roman rule. Uh, Romans, or excuse me, they, uh, Roman rule. Uh, chapter 2, 18 through 25 was directed towards Christians who are servants of unbelieving masters. Uh, chapter 3, verse 1 through 6 was directed to wives of unbelieving husbands. And then verse 7 of chapter 3 was directed to husbands of unbelieving wives. And in today's message, Peter is speaking to his entire audience again as he calls them to live differently. Now, I feel like a lot of people in Western Christianity, Western Christians, have taken this live differently idea and have tend to run away with it, sometimes to the point of abuse. And so as we're walking through this passage, I want us to ask the question uh, that kind of comes with this sermon series we're, we're going through. Um, how are we as Christians able to live faithfully in a foreign world? How, what does that look like? How do we do that? And as we walk through this passage, hopefully we can come away uh, with some good foods for thought, food for thought, and... Uh, yeah, it's going to be good, you guys. So if you guys have your Bibles, uh, open up to 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 22. If you do not have a copy with you, we'll have it on the screen behind me. And if you don't have a copy of God's Word like at all, like if you don't own a physical copy, we really want you to have one. Uh, we should have a bunch of copies back there at the Connect Point. Please just, if you see a Bible over there, just grab it, take, you, take it with you. We want you guys to have that. Um, all right, 1 Peter chapter 3, 8 through 22. I'll read for us. Finally, all of you, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and the ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be Put to shame. 
For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you as a removal, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Would you all pray with me this morning? Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, for this incredible community, God, that you've allowed us to be a part of for all the servant leaders and servant hearts that have been put in this room, Lord. Give us open minds and open hearts to experience what you want us to this morning out of your word. We love you so much. It's because you love us first. It's in your son's name I pray. Amen. A lot of what Peter says in this section, specifically kind of at the beginning of this section, feels like common sense. Like we as Christians will read a lot of these words and we'll say, yeah, this, this makes sense to me. And yet it's still very hard to put into practice. So just be aware as we walk through everything in God's word is important. It's not easy sometimes, but it is important. So let's dive in. Verse eight. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Peter's telling these Gentile Christians how they are to treat each other, but not just each other, but also the people who would be considered non-believers. In the first century Greco-Roman world, most of these words that Peter is listing were thought of as appropriate for building society and community. However, the motivation behind these five aspects of the Christian life were unique to followers of Jesus. So I'm, I'm going to give you those terms again, but I'm going to I'm going to read each of these terms by kind of Greco-Roman standards. So unity of mind is helpful for sustaining order in specific communities, but not intended to bridge the gaps between classes and different groups. Sympathy, which is literally translated, it's like to suffer together, to suffer with, was common for people in your own family or your own social class, but not for people perceived as less than. Brotherly love and tenderheartedness, which tenderheartedness, this has nothing to necessarily do with the passage, but that is literally translated as it's good insides. It's like good guts, to be tenderhearted, good guts, which has nothing to do with it, but I thought that was so cool. Brotherly love and good guts. It's understandable within a family unit, but it's very odd for an entire community and inappropriate for outside of a community. So all these terms would have been used in the Greco-Roman society, but it would have almost been exclusively used in family groups. Peter is using words normally reserved for family members to describe how Christians should treat not just believers, but also non-believers. Peter is taking culturally acceptable terms and applying them in odd and inappropriate ways, culturally speaking. Now, I left out the word humility on purpose, um, in the first century, humility was not a celebrated term uh, or trait in really any context. 
To say someone was humble was to say that they either would not or could not fight to claim what was rightfully theirs. To claim humility was to claim that you were powerless to defend your own status and position. So Peter celebrating Christian humility was incredibly countercultural in really every conceivable context. And it made no sense to encourage people to identify by their powerlessness. Regardless of what we experience in this life, we are heirs with Christ. We're looking to an inheritance that awaits us. In humility, we as Christians proclaim that we are powerless to defend our position because Jesus did that at the cross. We are not the ones that determine our eternal status or our eternal destination. That's what Jesus does. Now, I wanted to touch on, because I feel like we can often go here, Peter is not saying that all social causes are worthless. Like it's, it's a, we can't fight for our status, so it's not worth fighting at all. That's not what Peter is saying. I just picked a couple verses out, Isaiah 117 and Psalm 106.3. Learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. And then Psalm 106, blessed are they who observe justice, who do righteousness at all times. Seeking justice as we fight to end oppression and abuse is a good thing. It's an incredibly good thing. We should do this as the hands and feet of Jesus but when it comes to our position and our status and our authority and our power in this world, we have already been named as co-heirs with Christ in the new heavens and new earth. As followers of Jesus, our faith should leak into our relationships. Our faith should be evident to the people we interact with day to day. We are called to love others as Christ loved us. Peter is showing us what that looks like. We're called to be harmonious in our relationships, to have a desire to understand what others are feeling, have devoted love for one another like you would your own family. Be open and vulnerable, not calloused. And as you walk through life, have humility, knowing Jesus is the one who died for you. The Christian church is called to live differently, not just to be different for the sake of being different, but to live as Christ calls us to live, which in turn will set us apart as different than the world. Does that make sense? Like our, our being different is, isn't there this way, so I'm going to be the exact opposite. It's like we're not supposed to be reactive. We're not supposed to be contrarian for the sake of being contrarian. If you are a follower of Jesus, you will in turn ruffle the feathers of the world sometimes. That's, that's, that's the result. We're not, actively per, like, we're not actively pursuing to ruffle feathers. That's just a byproduct of being a follower of Jesus. Does that make sense? We're going to cover that more down the road, but that's, Peter drives that home big time. Christ is what should make us different from the world. Verse 9. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. I love that. Bless. For to this we were called that you may obtain a blessing. In first century honor-shame culture, human value had everything to do with, the th with things like reputation and wealth and influence and connection. Your character was worth defending, so verbal retaliation or verbal abuse was often expected if your, if your honor was in question or was insulted. To retaliate would have, not, would have been incredibly or I should say, to not retaliate would have been really culturally shocking. 
The reality Peter is commenting on is applicable in many cultures, including ours, I think. When someone wrongs you or insults you, our natural reaction is just to do just that. It's to react. It's to be reactive. Peter tells us that not only should we avoid repaying an insult with an insult or a cruel statement with a cruel statement, but we should go a huge step farther and bless them in response to their cruelty. Don't just exercise self-control in not snapping back, but bless the one who just insulted you. Peter's reflecting the very words of Jesus in Luke chapter 6, 27 and 28. But I say to you here, say to you who here, love your enemy, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. Christian blessing is not just the absence of getting even as we go back to our Christian huddles and start gossiping about how horrible that person is or how horrible that movement is or how horrible this party is or whatever. We're supposed to bless. That's way harder. That's way more difficult. We are called to see an altercation as an opportunity to break the cycle, to bless the people who curse us. It's an opportunity. Verse 10 through 12. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Peter quotes from Psalm 34 here to bolster his previous point. What Peter is teaching is reflected in the Hebrew scriptures. Peter takes the text that refers to David and applies it to the present situation. Just as God delivered David from sojourning among the Philistines, God will deliver first century Christians and Christians today from their sojourning in the world. Just like David, they are God's covenant people. Just like David, we are God's covenant people. The Lord is for the righteous and is against those who do evil. Verse 13 and 14. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. After Peter quotes from the book of Psalms, he gives the audience this takeaway. Who will harm you if you do good? If you're righteous, if you're on God's side, who can hurt those who belong to God? Isaiah 50 verse 9a says, Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Obviously, Christians still experience hostility at times, even if they are zealous for good things. Good things, or I should say, bad things still happen to good people and vice versa. When we walk through 1 Peter chapter 4 next week, we'll see Peter mention how some Gentiles will, will slander Christians when they refuse to participate in worldly things. But if you do what is right in God's eyes and still suffer for it, Peter says that you will be blessed. Peter continues to echo the teachings of Jesus as recorded in the book of Matthew chapter five. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Peter acknowledges that by having a zeal to do what is good, People in general will not have a desire to harm you. If you do good things, people aren't instinctively wanting to come after you. However, Christians should not be surprised if they suffer for the sake of righteousness, just like Jesus. Bless you. 
Verse 15. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. I think this verse often gets misrepresented in modern culture. People always read, be prepared to make a defense, and immediately go looking for a fight. For the 21st century American, we read about defense and we immediately start building a barricade to fight an enemy. That's the mentality oftentimes that we have. At least I do. I hear defense. It's like there's someone coming. I have to fight them. But when we read on, it says, always being prepared to make offense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Our goal is not to shame or defeat in battle. Rather, have things like sympathy, unity, brotherly love, tender-heartedness, good guts, humility. We are called to give a defense to tell others what we hope in. Not to beat them down into submission by our prideful, Americanized theology. Peter is encouraging interaction and conversation with non-believers. If you interact with someone who asks you about why you hope in this guy Jesus, be prepared to give a good answer. An answer that they can understand, an answer that is gentle, and an answer that is respectful. Imagine if our interaction with non-believers was less about winning an argument and more about being someone's first genuine, kind-hearted experience, hearing about this guy named Jesus that loves them more than anyone ever could. That'd be a game changer, I think. I think Peter thinks so too. Verse 16 and 17. Having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Being gentle and respectful as we explain the reason for our hope will, will result in a good conscience. I really appreciate these verses a lot, especially because our oftentimes westernized American Christianity has a tendency of being a little entitled. Western Christians, there's an entitlement problem. And oftentimes, in our venture to prove others wrong, we push people away from the very faith they were curious enough to ask questions about. And if, as I said that, your immediate thought was, well, non-believers are entitled too, you're proving the point. Peter is talking to Christians here. This is a letter to a Christian community. Some of you will suffer for doing good, and some of you will suffer for doing bad. So... Be gentle and respectful so that when suffering comes, when suffering comes, you know it was from the good you did in the name of Jesus and not the bad that you did in the name of your pride. Now, we're, we're about to dive into verses uh, 18 through 22. So from the top, there are a lot of different ways to uh, interpret these next five verses. This section is widely considered one of the more difficult passages to nail down in the New Testament, 
And to kind of bolster this point, I put a quote from the reformer, the German reformer, Martin Luther, he, uh, a quote about this passage. This is a strange text and certainly more obscure passage than any other passage in the New Testament. I still do not know for sure what the apostle meant. <laughs> and I get to talk about it, which I'm very excited about, honestly. Mark was like, hey, can you do this? And I was like, heck yeah. So for the sake of time, and again, like I knew, like I, I as I started studying this, I had in my mind the different kind of interpretations. And as I started studying, I realized there were way, even way more than I was aware of. And so for the sake of time, I'm not going to give you every single interpretation. Um, I'm going to share you what I believe to be the best interpretation as of this moment. Um, but please do your own studying. I've, I've looked through some of, and there's, I made a list of a few different interpretations where I went, Oh, that's a, a very biblical response. That's a very biblical response, but I decided to pick one that I thought was uh, the best one, I think, as of this moment. So let's do it. 18 through 22. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So there are two main things I want to kind of cover in this section. Uh, the, spirit, the spirits in prison referenced in verse 19, and then baptism talked about in verse 21. And I think the key to interpreting both of these is uh, the mentioning of Noah and the ark. That's kind of the context that uh, Peter is using to help explain what we're reading. So first, we're going to address the spirits in verse 19. So for context, uh, back in Genesis chapter 6, which if you guys want to go back and read that, it's a the first like eight verses of that are just wild. But before Noah and the flood, uh, it talks about this great heavenly rebellion. Uh, basically, these fallen spiritual beings referred to as sons of God uh, saw the women of the earth, thought they were beautiful, and forced these women to have relations with them. And these women had children that became known as the Nephilim or the Nephilim. They were these like giant warrior kings from like way back in the day. Jude 6 says, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left the proper dwelling, he has kept an eternal change under, chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Jesus, in his death and resurrection, proclaims to the fallen spiritual beings in spiritual prison, I have victory and your rebellion failed. I win, you lose. That, that's good, that's good. <laughs> That's, I, like, even as I'm studying, I'm like, man, I'm so glad Peter added that thing. That is so cool. It has weight. Peter just got done talking about how, like Christ, we will suffer for doing good, but the suffering is within God's plan. We serve a God who has already proclaimed victory over evil. The suffering we have in this life is not an ongoing struggle of who's going to win. It's a battle that's already been won. Jesus already won. The same King Jesus in verse 22, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. 
Jesus is king. Jesus is ruling. We are, he already has victory. By Peter mentioning these spirits, he is showing that the suffering we do is not a battle that wages with an unknown victor. Jesus has already claimed victory and will return to make all things new. I love it so much, just this visual of Jesus going down and being like, you lost. You lost. I win. My children are safe, and there's nothing you can do about it. Okay, now let's talk about baptism. This one's a little bit more dicey. Peter brings the story of Noah up on purpose for this topic. And I'm going to read those verses again. I'm going to put some, uh, yeah, just going to read them again for you. This is uh, 1 Peter 3.20b, uh, 20b, 2.21. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this now, saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The parallel I believe Peter is, is wanting us to see is between the flood waters and the resurrection, through the waters, through the resurrection. We've already talked about this before, but just kind of a, a, a quick review on like ancient Near Eastern cosmology. Uh, in the ancient Near East, the, the narrative use of water was super duper important. Uh, when God created the world and he separated the land from the sea, he separated the waters, he was bringing order to a chaotic and unformed world. When Moses and the Israelites cross the Red Sea, the water is parted and they cross. And when the Egyptians come through, God allows the waters to fall together and cover the Egyptians. So water separated, uh, order, uh, uh, creation, it's this kind of act of creation. The waters are allowed to fall in on themselves, decreation, chaos. Does that make sense? That's kind of the ancient Near Eastern mindset. That's why the flood narrative is, is so wild. God allows the waters to fall in on each other. This sinful world is given over to chaos and decreation. Death covers the world except for this ark holding eight people and a whole lot of animals. So God created the world. God goes to Noah and says, you, your family is the only real righteous family left. I am decreating. I'm, we're destroying everything. The world, I'm going to destroy the world. The waters, I'm allowing the waters to fall in on themselves and everything's getting wiped out and I'm starting over. Noah and his family were the few righteous people that God saved. God brought them through the chaos waters, the waters of death, to safety in the ark of God's design. Similarly, through the resurrection, the followers of Jesus are the few who are brought through the waters of death into life in Christ. Uh, James Dunn, this uh, New Testament scholar, summarized this really, really well, and I'm very thankful I ran into this quote because I think it summarizes it way better than I could in my own words, and so I'm just going to quote it for you. Quote, baptism is a symbolic expression of the heart's appeal to God. Baptism is a calling on God. It is a way of saying to God with your whole body, I trust you to take me into Christ like Noah was taken into the ark and to make Jesus the substitute for my sins and to bring me through these waters of death and judgment into new and everlasting life through the resurrection of Jesus my Lord. Peter is not saying that baptism saves you. You have to contextually, like we read it in our English translation 
And if we put certain emphasis on certain things, it can oftentimes feel that way. But if we read the passage as a whole, that's not what Peter is saying. Peter is saying that like Noah, you passed through death and came alive and came out alive, not because of what you did, but because of what God did. Baptism is the representation of what we received because of Christ's death and resurrection. We are buried with Christ. We rise with Christ. We receive life in Christ. It's completely because of Jesus. I'm going to go ahead and welcome the band back up here. Um, and, and as I do, I want to ask that question, ask that question again. How are Christians able to faithfully live in a foreign world? And I was trying to think of some like creative way to like, I don't know, like, I, I don't know. You, you preach a sermon and you get through it and you're waiting for that payoff to be like this answer we've never heard before. Like, oh my gosh. But the answer is Jesus. <laughs> I know that's so Sunday school and I, and I really pray like if something is Sunday school, 99.9% of the time, that's a good thing. I pray that we never get tired of the answer being Jesus because the entire Bible, the answer is Jesus. And this, this section is no exception. He died for you. Every inch of the Bible comes down to that statement. Jesus died for you, for us, for me. If you're sitting in this room and you know what Jesus has done, in your life, what should your response be? Why are Christians called to live differently? Why is our natural bent in life supposed to be gentleness and humility, unity and tenderheartedness, brotherly love and a zeal for goodness? Should we walk through life with entitlement and this idea that people need to bend to our will and bend to our status? Or do we humbly bend to God's will as we love on anyone who gives us the time of day? Maybe in, so, maybe in some cases, people who don't give us the time of day. Sometimes that's part of it. We walk through this life as a royal priesthood, representatives of Jesus. Peter literally ends this section reminding his audience that Christ already has obtained victory for us. And now, we walk through this life willing to suffer like he did for righteousness as we faithfully give a gentle defense of what we hope for. Our hope is in Jesus, the same Jesus who will soon return and take us to an eternity with him. When people see us, when people notice us and it frustrates them, it shouldn't be because we just are wanting to be different. It's because we want to be like Jesus. And if we're like Jesus, the world's going to look at that and say, this just doesn't add up for me. Our goal isn't to frustrate people. But to the world, Jesus is incredibly frustrating. He routed death. He routed sin. He took our pain, our punishment on himself, and he died. And he rose again for us. We have life 
because of Jesus. That's what our hope is in. The future hope of getting to be in God's presence together. This, but like perfect, like it's crazy. This is fantastic. I cannot wait to see what a perfect version of this looks like. It's, it's going to be so good. We live for Jesus. Our hope is in Jesus. And I pray he comes back soon. Would you guys pray with me? Heavenly Father, you are so good. And it is incredible to think about how much you love us. And in response to that love, Lord, I pray that we graciously walk through life with humility, unity of mind, a desire to be compassionate, to have good guts, tenderheartedness, Lord. And when someone comes and questions our faith and questions our resolve, questions us as people, I pray that we have gentleness and respect and we don't lean on our pride, we lean on you. You are where, you're our status, Lord. You fought for us, you died for us. You're the reason that we have life, Lord. And I pray that we remember that, that this is not a battle that we can win by ourselves. This is a battle that you already won on our behalf. We love you so much, Lord. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this community. I pray we remember that, Lord. It's in your son's name I pray. Amen.